this Saturday. Well, let's open our Bibles, if you would please, and go to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5 is where we are in our study uh, together, and we're going to look at these 19 verses this evening. Nehemiah uh, chapter 5, and we'll begin reading at verse number 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from that time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year of the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them from their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall. And we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. 
Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. Well, it has been clear uh, in our studies of Nehemiah that when God's people do God's work in God's way, we will inevitably face opposition. The opposition that we looked at together last Wednesday night in chapter 4 was carried out by people who were outside of the Jewish family. Enemies of Jerusalem, Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, and other partnering adversaries. You'll remember they, they hurled insults against the people and they even plotted out the possibility of a surprise attack against them while they were working on the wall. Now we noted that this type of opposition is to be expected, especially from those who are on the outside of God's work. But what is not often expected is when these challenges come from the inside, from among God's people. But this is exactly how Satan works. If he cannot stop God's work from without, which was indeed unsuccessful in Nehemiah chapter 4, Satan will then change course, if you will. He'll adjust strategies and try to stop God's work from within. After all, Jesus himself said in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 25, that no city or house divided against itself will stand. And so based upon that understanding, Satan often will revert, change strategies, and enter havoc from the inside. Now, friends, this is just how much Satan hates and opposes the work of God. This is how much he hates and opposes the people of God. He will do anything he possibly can to stop it. J.I. Packer said, Satan is a hater, a wrecker, and a destroyer. And only when he is ruining God's work in individuals and communities is he happy. And so that's what we see. Opposition has been a reoccurring theme here in our study of Nehemiah's work for God in returning the people and restoring the glory of God in Jerusalem. Opposition from without and now opposition from within. Let's look at it in three sections this evening. First of all, I want you to see the situation Nehemiah encountered. The situation Nehemiah encountered. That's verses 1 through 5. Look, look if you will, at verse 1. There arose a great outcry. All right? This is, this is no small thing, okay? This is a huge deal. There arose a, a great outcry of the people and of their wives, notice this, against their Jewish brothers. So what we have here is an internal conflict, an internal conflict. This is not an outcry from the outsiders. This is an outcry from among the insiders against 
their own people. And if you haven't noticed it already, it has a domestic tone to it, doesn't it? The wives are singled out here as some of the loudest voices. And then when you get to verse 2, you find that the sons and daughters are also mentioned as crying out against this problem. Now the issue is a compounding one that is centered on the difficult economic times that they were presently experiencing. The end of verse 3, it says that there is a famine in the land, which no doubt brought economic struggles, stress, and anxiety. This was affecting even God's people. Their families were stressfully enduring all that was going on. And so the sons and daughters are at risk, and the, the wives are unsettled, and the husbands are bearing this burden. Notice that there seems to be three different dynamics and groups that are mentioning their problems. One group in verse 2 says, we don't have enough food to feed our families. He says, there are those who said, with our sons and daughters, we are many. Some of you with large families like myself understand exactly what they're saying right here. Uh, We can't go to Chick-fil-A without spending more money than I even want to tell you we have to spend. And that's because with our sons and daughters, we are many. And that's what he's saying here. Uh, With our sons and daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. That we may eat and keep alive. We have so many children that are under our care that we're not even able to put food on the table to stay alive. Again, this is is compounded by the fact that the husbands were busy doing God's work. They were busy working on the wall, which limited their ability to earn more income. That was one group. Another group says we're having to mortgage our property just to buy food. Again, verse 3, there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the family. Essentially, they're going into enormous debt just to provide for their needs. And then in verse 4, we see a third group. There are those who have so many children that they can barely find enough food to stay alive. There are those who are mortgaging their properties in order to buy food. And then this group says, and we've had to borrow money just to pay the taxes that the king has enforced on us. Again, verse 4, there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. And by the way, these were unreasonable taxes. These are high, exuberant interest rates that were being levied against the people. And on top of all, they were being forced to sell their very own children into slave work in order to pay the loans and pay the taxes and put food on the table. Now here's where it hurts. This largely wasn't happening from external sources. This was happening from people on the inside. In other words, the people of God were doing it to each other. 
And this division and instability on the inside was far greater than anything Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem could have produced back in chapter 4. At the heart of it, what's happening here is that the rich Jews who provided the loans to the people were taking advantage of the poor Jews who couldn't pay the loans. Now, let me just clarify here that this is not about having wealth. That's not the issue here. It's about how wealth is used. It's about how wealth is abused. That's the issue. Group this together with the famine and the limited time that they had to work. This was just a a challenging economic time. Now, I don't know that it's fair for us to even remotely compare our seasons of life with some of the seasons that we read about in the Bible. But all of us are very aware of challenging economic times. In fact, for some of these Jews, times were about as bad as they could be. This is the situation that Nehemiah encountered. Secondly, I want you to see the solution that Nehemiah prescribed. The solution that Nehemiah prescribed. Now, first, I want you to look at his reaction to the situation. His reaction. Verse 6, he was angry. He was angry. He says, I was, I was very angry when I heard their outcry. Now, this is what we call righteous indignation. He knows that what's going on is not right among the people of God. In fact, he says that in verse number 9. The thing that you are doing is not good. It's not good. It's not right. You're exploiting the poor. You're withholding from them proper sustenance, and you are abusing their children who happen to be our own family, our own bloodline, just for personal gain. So what you have here is Nehemiah being filled with righteous indignation, a holy anger, if you will, at the sin that is being committed among the people of God. And every once in a while, righteous indignation ought to rise up in our very own hearts. The Bible teaches us that there is an anger that is not sin. Now, 99% 99% of the time, our anger is sin. Let's just be honest. But there is that 1% of the time, that 1% of the time where we are not calloused or casual toward the sin that is happening right in front of us. And that ought to create a righteous indignation in our lives. In fact, righteous anger is a proper response when God's glory is offended. When God's word is maligned, and especially when God's people are abused. And all of those things are happening among the people of God. They are offending the glory of God. They are maligning the word of God, and they are abusing the people of God. So his initial reaction, anger, anger. He's upset at what he's heard, and he is indignant about what he has discovered. Which leads us to a second reaction, which I simply wrote in my notes as this, he then gathered his thoughts, okay? 
Now, at first he was angry, but then he gathers his thoughts. Look at it in verse 7. He said, I took counsel with myself. He, He allowed his emotions to calm down, okay, in order that he could process rationally as well as righteously. Now, let's not miss this important step for each of us. Because uncontrolled emotions are extremely dangerous. And they will lead us to say and do things that we often regret. And so we're learning something from Nehemiah. Righteous indignation, a holy anger, is a good initial response to the offense against God and his word. But then we need to, we need to calm down. We need to calm down, if you will, and start thinking rationally, thinking righteously, so that we don't respond or react in a way that further hurts the glory of God. My rule that I live by, this is not created by me, psychologists will tell you that it's within 48 hours, within at least 48 hours, psychologists tell us that the irrational thoughts and emotions that creep up into our minds, it takes about 48 hours for those things to subside. So I've tried to make it a habit and a practice in my life that when emotions are swelling high, I stop for at least 48 hours before I respond or react or shoot that email or uh, uh, meet with that individual. I just need some time to calm down a little bit, to think through, to take counsel with myself so that I don't make things worse as I have often done many, many times in my life. Take it as a measure of counsel here that when emotions get the best of us, we need to give time for the irrational thoughts of our minds to set at ease. That's what Nehemiah is doing. He's angry, yes. But then, but then, as the theologian Taylor Swift says, he calmed down. He gathered his thoughts. And thirdly, he confronted the problem. He confronted the problem. Verse 7, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. Now, here's the charges. Verse 7, he tells them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. Not only is he exacting interest, that that is putting high exuberant interest rates on these loans on the people of God, but but verse 8 says, and I'm I'm paraphrasing here, uh, Nehemiah says, look, we returned to this land from slavery and now you're bringing your brothers back into the very bondage that we redeemed them from? So he's confronting the issue. He is dealing with the problem ahead, not sweeping it under the rug. He's not ignoring it. He's not hoping that it will go away. He's doing what we have to do sometimes, and that is confront the problem. Now, let me say that it should not be on our daily task list to confront as many people as we can tomorrow. But there are times we must do so whether it be our own children, our brothers and sisters in the Lord, but especially those who claim the name of Christ and are publicly offending his glory. Now, 
when that confrontation takes place, it ought to always be done carefully and under control. I think that's why you see here Nehemiah getting his anger into the proper emotions. He took some counsel with himself. He calmed down. He came down, if you will. And then he carefully and under control confronted them. He specifically detailed what they had been doing. And then he strongly pronounced in verse 9 that the thing you are doing is not good. What you're doing is not good. By the way, they knew that what they were doing was not good. They knew that. Now, most of the time in our confrontation of those who are publicly offending the word of God and maligning his glory, most of the time, nine times out of ten, people know exactly what they're doing. They know exactly what they're doing. They know the wrong that they're involved in. And that's the case here. Because the law was very clear about this activity. And all of these Jewish people understood the law inside and out. For example, it was not wrong according to the law for a Jew to lend money as long as they were lending money to a non-Jew and charging them interest, okay? So they could lend money with interest as long as they were doing that to non-Jews. It wasn't wrong to lend money to a Jew within their own community. However, they were not allowed to charge them interest. They were not allowed to demand that from them like they were non-Jews. All right? That was a part of the law. And the other thing here is they knew unequivocally that it was wrong to enslave another Jew. So, so they have violated everything that the law was clear about. They knew what they were doing was wrong, and Nehemiah confronted it. There may be someone in your life tonight that you need, by God's grace, the courage to confront with those same words. The thing that you are doing is not good. The thing that you are doing is not right. Now, again, we can learn from Nehemiah here because as he brings this confrontation against them, he also gives them a solution. He gives them a solution which should help us in our confrontations with others because confrontation should never involve accusation alone. In fact, the New Testament even gives us principles about accusations. And so we're not going to get into that this evening, but let it be at least a principle that we learn here from Nehemiah chapter 5 that confrontation should never involve accusations alone. It should always include a solution. And so there's three things that Nehemiah does and not only a accusing them of their wrongdoing, but he provides for them a right response. Three of them, we see them in verse 9, 10, and 11. The first one is he tells them to walk in the fear of God. Walk in the fear of God. Verse 9, ought you not to walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? So, so he says this, what you're doing is wrong. It is not right. It is the result of people who are not walking in reverence toward God, and so we just need to stop for a moment and get back to walking in the fear of God, 
get back to walking in the reverence of God, that he is everywhere, that he knows all things, that he, that he sees us and that we were created for his glory, that he has set us apart as a holy people and a holy nation. We do not need to be living outside of the fear of God. We need to be living within the fear of God that is reverencing him in all aspects of our life. And he tells them that this is what they need to do both not only for their own holiness but also because of their witness to the world. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Nehemiah says, here we are, claiming to be God's holy people, separated unto him, doing his work for his glory. And our enemies are laughing at us because we're not behaving any differently than they are. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God, not only for your own holiness, but because of the world that is watching us, who will taunt us, who will reject our God because of our own behavior? I believe so often we fail to see this even in family life. Are we foolish enough to think that our children will rise up and walk in the fear of God when we do not? Dad, ought you not to walk in the fear of God so that you are not taunted by your children? Mom, ought you not to walk in the fear of God so that your children will love the Lord and serve the Lord and fear Him? Church family, are we not to walk in the holiness and the fear of God, reverencing Him in all that we do so that we are a light to the world? That's what Nehemiah is saying. The thing you're doing is not good. And what you ought to be doing is walking in the fear of God. And then he says, secondly, abandon this abuse of God's law. And I emphasize the word abandon. Verse 10, let us abandon, abandon this exacting of interest. It's a very clear call to repentance. Stop, he says, this sinning. Abandon your unholy ways. Repent of your wrongdoing. In other words, what you've been doing is wrong. And you need to walk in the fear of God again and stop abusing these people. And stop stealing from God's people. And stop manipulating God's people. And stop breaking God's law in your behavior. Abandon this sin in your life. Uh, we, we, we don't hear this enough. But it's throughout the Bible. God's grace does not exist to be trampled on. God's grace exists in our lives to give us the power and strength to abandon that which he says we ought to repent and walk away from. Abandon this abuse, he says. Now, now in case you think this is just Nehemiah's sermon, let me remind you about what Jesus said to the man, the lame man that he healed at the pool of Bethesda. John chapter 5, verse 14. He says to him, sin no more. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Those are the words of Jesus. 
It's not a call to sinless perfection, by the way. He knows that we are not perfect people. But he also says, I have given you the grace to walk free from sin. Repentance. Go and sin no more because if you keep on sinning, if you keep doing this wrong thing, if you're not willing to repent, then worse things are going to happen. It's the mouth of Jesus. What did he say to the lady at the well? John chapter 8 and verse 11, after he forgave her and said, I do not condemn you, he says, go, go, and from now on, don't sin anymore. Don't keep doing this thing that you've been doing. Move out of the houses of those men that you've been living with. Stop sleeping around. Stop giving your body for profit. I'm not condemning you. You're forgiving, but you've got to stop living that way. Go and sin no more. This is what Nehemiah is calling to walk in the fear of God. Abandon this abuse of God's law. And then he says, return to them, verse 11, return to them what is theirs. Return to them what is, what is theirs. Verse 11, return to them this very day what you have been exacting from them. In other words, make it right. Make it right. Return to them what is theirs. And the Bible says that's exactly what they did. They repented they abandoned their wrongdoing, and they returned everything back properly, that which they had manipulated and made their own. Well, may it be a call to our hearts this evening that if the thing that you are doing is not good, fear the Lord. Abandon your sin and return in faithfulness to him this is the solution that Nehemiah prescribed but we see a third element in the closing verses of the chapter we see the standard that Nehemiah lived by the standard that Nehemiah himself lived by coming to verse 14 we learn something about Nehemiah that we did not yet know in the process of time Nehemiah was made governor of Judah now, the reason we're told that is because the position of governor, as it is in many political places, came with certain perks. And these perks were provided to them by the king, such as what is mentioned in verse 14, a, a food allowance. And in connection with this issue, Nehemiah wants us to see that even he learned from the situation that took place in the first 13 verses. Even when he became governor of the people. For example, in verse 15, Nehemiah comments on the fact that his predecessors were notorious for placing, and I quote here, verse 15, heavy burdens on the people. They were notorious for placing heavy burdens on the people by enforcing these exuberant taxes for their own personal gain. Now, by the way, it was in their prerogative to do so. We're not doing anything wrong in terms of the position that was given to them to set the taxes at any level that they desire. However, Nehemiah said in verse 15, but I did not do so and I didn't do so because of the fear of God. In other words, out of the reverence, out of reverence for the character and the testimony of God, Nehemiah chose not to enact the privileges that were given to him especially if those privileges 
burdened the people. So he was moved to live by a standard. A standard of living that was motivated by both a reverence for God and a refusal to harm others. Especially the people of God. The people in God of which he was to serve. And he gives us an example of this. He gives us in verse 17 and 18 this issue of the governor's food allowance. Now, again, this food allowance was his right. It was a privilege that he was entitled to not only by the king but also by the Mosaic law. He would have done nothing wrong in using the supplied allowance that was given to him. But Nehemiah knew that in the current circumstance of their land, the famine, that it would have burdened the people if he would have used the food allowance. So he made a decision not to use it. Instead, he decided to serve the workers and the officials out of his own generosity. These closing verses tell us that he prepared this big dinner, a big dinner that was large enough to feed over 150 people. I don't know what the largest amount of people you've ever had in your home over for dinner was, but this is Nehemiah's case, all right? Over 150 people come into the governor's place where they would eat, and he fed them. He did this every day, chapter 5 tells us. And he does it due to the circumstances of the famine. But when you look at this, you see that it was truly a a labor of love. It it was motivated by care and concern for the well-being of the people in tough economic times. Now, I think it's important that we make note of the fact that uh, Nehemiah was not necessarily a pauper. When you look at his former role in Artaxerxes' court, he was a political figure there. He was the king's cupbearer came with a nice salary. In fact, one of the largest that would ever be given out in the king's cabinet. You combine that life that he had back in Persia with what his role is now as governor, and then you begin to see this generosity in chapter 5. We can safely conclude that Nehemiah was a very wealthy man. But, Again, wealth is not the issue in Nehemiah chapter 5. It's not about wealth. It's it's not necessarily having stuff, for lack of a better term, that's the problem here. It's how we use our stuff. It's how we spend our wealth that's the concern. So the Bible's very clear on this. God blesses people. Not all people, but he blesses some people richly. It's not wrong to have stuff. What's wrong is if stuff has you. It's not wrong to have wealth. What's wrong is if wealth dominates you. So that's the lesson that we're learning. Not that it's wrong to have stuff. Not that it's wrong to invest. Not that it's wrong to be wealthy. But there is something that God is very concerned about in how we manage these things. Nehemiah had rights. He had privileges. He had prerogatives. He had wealth. But he also chose to live by a standard that used those blessings for the benefit of God's work and God's people and not always for the benefit of himself. 
He exemplified what we call a modest lifestyle that was free from greed and full of generosity. Of course, no greater example of this than Jesus himself. Jesus, who owns it all, but willingly laid it aside so that he could advance the kingdom of God. He relinquished his prerogatives, Philippians 2 tells us, so that he could serve his people. Now, what does this have to do with you and I? Well, everything. Because you and I are called by Scripture to the very same lifestyle. A lifestyle of modesty and a lifestyle of generosity. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6. As for the rich in this present age. Now, oh, don't tune me out right there. Because some of you are in the same position that I am. You can't even go to Chick-fil-A anymore because it's too expensive. So you're thinking, well, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not rich. Well, all you have to do is just take a few Google searches tonight and compare what you have to the rest of the 7.5 billion people in the world. And you'll realize that we are rich. Very rich. Very, very rich. This Bible is not written for American people. This is a global book. So when the Bible talks about the rich, you know who he's talking about? He's talking about me and you. Now, our standard may not be the standard of our neighbors. We may not have Elon Musk money. But you don't have to have Elon Musk money to be rich. We're rich. So don't don't tune yourself out right now. I want you to listen. He's saying, as for the rich in this present age, those of you who have a lot, I want you to charge those people not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Don't hope in riches that are uncertain. I'll just dabble in the stocks for a little while and you'll see how uncertain riches are. Look, look, look at the interest rates. Look at how much is going out of our checking accounts more quickly than what's going into them, all right? Riches are uncertain. They're unstable. What was happening in our safety and convenience five, six years ago is not the question right now. It's not the issue. So don't trust in what you have. Don't trust in your possessions. Don't trust in those numbers that's in your bank account tonight because that's uncertain. Instead, he says, hope in God. Hope in God, trust in God, who richly, richly, generously provides us with everything to enjoy. He goes on in verse 18. He says, I want you to do good. In fact, I want you to also be rich in good works, generous, ready to share with others thus storing up for yourself treasure as a good foundation for the future, which is true life. It's a lifestyle of modesty. It's a lifestyle of generosity. Well, how do we live that way? Well, in the fear of God and with a compassionate heart with others. 
in the fear of God and with a compassionate heart for others. To put it simply, if Nehemiah was a millionaire, he didn't live a million-dollar lifestyle. That's the point. He used what he had to serve God and others. It's a standard by which we ought to reflect in our life, in our present economic struggles. Now, I'm done, but I found the very closing verse here a little challenging. By the way, I'm just so thankful that there are no babies in here tonight. This is wonderful. I can actually get through my sermon thinking about the Bible. I found the closing verse a little challenging. Look at it, verse number 19. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Remember for my good all that I have done for this people. Now, it's a prayer, certainly. But the distinct purpose for the prayer is hard to discern as it is written. I found Derek Thomas's comments extremely helpful. Here's what he said. Uh, Nehemiah is speaking in this verse from a point in the future at which the success of his hard work and sacrifice is not necessarily evident. For all his hard work and labor, there is still too little to show for it. Nehemiah's pleading that the Lord would come and acknowledge his endeavors. Does that clear things up? I'm not sure it does. <laughs> but I think what we have here, even though we may be uncomfortable praying this prayer, as it seems to be a little self-serving, you know, remember, remember all the things that I have done for the people of God, Lord. It may be a little uncomfortable to pray this prayer, but I do believe it was a prayer of faith on Nehemiah's part. To help him sense that God indeed is working even though he doesn't immediately see it. It's almost like a, a prayer of hope. Lord, I pray that this will have been fruitful. I pray that even though I can't see it, that my service to you through the people has been one that you will honor and give fruit even if it's beyond my own lifetime. Now look, I resonate with this. Some of you work in places of business today where you can come home and see the fruit of your hands. I mean, some of you worked on a car engine today, and if it came in not running, you can take your hands, grease and all, David, and you can put it up together. And by the time you're done with it, which is far too long, David, and far too expensive, but when you're done with it, when you're done with it, you can step back and, look, I, I did that. Some of you, uh, Parker, can wring someone's neck today at work and... <laughs> Step back and say, I did that. You know, I did that. You're in construction, Dale. You can stand back from your home that you built today in Harrisburg. And you look in that and you say, this is the fruit of my labor. It's often immediate. It's, it's visible. It gives a sense of self-worth. Now, I resonate with Nehemiah here because when it comes to my work, I don't always see it. So I, I find myself praying. 
that all of those messages I've cooked up at least two or three a week and brought them to the dinner table on Sunday and Wednesday, even if nobody says anything, even if nobody decisions are being made, at least that I'm aware of, I, I, I'm praying that even when I can't see it, that the Lord is going to bless the labor in ways that is not always visible. Now, I don't know if that's his meaning, but I, I feel like it is. At least it is to me. And I think it is a reminder that as we choose to live in the reverence of God, whether it is in our parenting and there are not immediate visible results, in our evangelism and there's not immediate visible results, or whatever the case may be, that we can stop and say, I am living in the reverence of God. I am living, living in compassionate love for others. I can only trust, Lord, that you will do as you said you would do and bless with fruit the work of my labor. Well, I, I say to you this evening in closing, however the Lord is speaking to you tonight, I pray that you will ultimately respond in the fear of God.